Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. But let me welcome to the show for the first time. You know, it's like uh, there's some amazing smart people. I think he's a very smart brother because I, I think he's, he was part of that, that brand at one point. He's got a new book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. What does that mean? Let me welcome contributing columnist for the Washington Post, Mr. Damon Young. Hi. Hey, hi. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I thought, you know, when you played Hammer uh, as the intro, I thought, wow, she really did some deep digging, deep diving, because when I was 10 years old, I wanted hair like Hammer, right? Because he had that he had the S curl with all with with all the parts going around. And I wanted to get that, but my parents wouldn't let me. So wow. uh, so, yeah. Well, you know, um, no, I didn't do a deep dive at all. I, I do something a little different than most. I, I like to discover people, meaning okay. I, I want to know what's in your brain. I'm not going to sit here and I'm not trying to throw different gotchas at you. And I, I just want to know who, who you are. Now, I th- were you part of that Very Smart Brother brand? Did you did you I'm, create it? Uh, yeah, I'm a founder, co-founder of BSB, uh, yes. myself and Panama Jackson. And um, also we had a third uh, founder when it started at Lidsburg. Um, and we founded that in 2008. Why did you, why did you sell it to, why did you, why did you go into, because y'all had something that was organic. It was, it was truthful. It was real. Um, You were finding, you know, you were evolving, I think. And then you ended up as part of the root or something that Gizmodo, that, Mm -hmm. that uh, with Telemundo, was it Telemundo, Univision, whatever. Mm -hmm. Let's just sit in that for a second, because a Spanish owned company that never puts black people on any of their outlets on the front, you know, even though the majority of Spanish speaking um, world has melanin, the majority of Spanish speaking world mm-hmm. has melanin. But if you look at their television news, tele, mm-hmm. the, you know, telenovelas, it's all white facing people that speak Spanish went and got the root, very smart brothers at VSB and a whole bunch of other black. Th- what can you, uh, are you still there before we, yeah, I'm, I'm here. Okay. Uh-huh. No, I mean, are yeah. you still with them? Oh no 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 no! I okay. left. Um, I actually left the root. I left the root uh, last year. Around, okay, so we can talk. Can we talk year. freely? Well, we can talk freely. Okay. Yeah. What What are your thoughts about that? And why did you go into that space? I mean, I know it was a check. It was good money, right? It was good money. It was very good money, and 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 yeah. So we already had a relationship with the root. Uh, Daniel Belton, who was the the editor in chief at that time, was a friend of mine. Um, Donna Bird, who was a publisher at that time, was also a friend, and I, I met with her a couple times, and. We were in a space where we were looking to get acquired because the demands of VSB had been had gotten so heavy for both of us that it became a full time job, and a full time job we're not getting paid for. Now, Panama Jackson, my other co founder, he had a job on Capitol Hill, but me, I was writing full time. Um, so you know, I was still able to you know I, I had a job at Ebony, then I had other freelance stuff I was doing. I had a thing at GQ. And so this was just an opportunity that made perfect sense because we didn't have to change anything. And now we got a really substantial acquisition fee and a salary to continue to do the things that we've been doing for, I guess, six or seven years up to that point. Um, so it just, made, it just made sense for us to do it. What did you give up for that, looking back, to get put, put all of this wonderful Black content in a space that you now don't own? I mean, to, to keep it a buck, the, the, we, we gave up a little bit editorially. And when I say a little bit, I mean, let's say 97% of what we were able to do before the acquisition, we were still able to do. Um, but, but little things like we couldn't say the N-word in titles. 
Good. anymore. And the N-word is I'm one of my favorite words. <laughs> I know. I know. We're going to split. <laughs> yeah. We're we going to have and, to be on opposite ends of that camp for now. But I mean, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a, I, I create things. I write things. I'm editor. All the business. The business part of it is not a thing that I'm not as, I'm as interested in. And so I, I get when people are like, you know what, Black ownership, you need to own your thing, own this, own that. But I also think that there's a benefit of having the infrastructure. Oh, um, I, I agree the with you. infrastructure and having all the people who do marketing and do ads and do all and, and copy editing and do all that for a living and being in a place that where you trust that and you could are just free to write and think of things and come up with new ideas. Uh, David, and the thing I could. with selling, ahead, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, and the thing with selling BSB um, and, you know, I've left BSB now is that if we want to, we create another one. I love it. I love it. Um, I love what you're saying. What I'm always interested in is why do they want us? If we're not valuable, we're, we come from ish whole countries. We're the worst and the worst, the dregs of society. Tomorrow I'm about to blow everybody's mind because they actually know that we're probably the most valuable in society, but they have us thinking that we're the worst. Why do you want us so? Why are you always in our music, in our language, with our food, our spices, always trying to grab our properties and all of the things if we're not valuable, if we're nothing, if we're the worst, if we're, if we're the reason why society doesn't work, if we're all of these things, why do you keep trying to acquire us? I, mean, I feel like you just answered your own question I right there because, <laughs> I mean, it's obvious. I mean, even, you know, Toni Morrison, um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to misquote her I'm paraphrasing here but she you know she had a a statement where she was like you know we black women were you know raised you know white children for for decades centuries almost and it's like if they thought that we were so inferior why would they let them raise their children if 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 they really thought that that black people were so inferior why would they get leave their most precious you know, their most precious um, thing on the planet with us if they believe the other thing to be true. I'm going to just take the other side of that because I don't really think they value their children, period. So I, <laughs> I, I, I ain't taking on that. I don't think they do that. There's that too. <laughs> I, I will say that in a negotiation, your 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 task in a negotiation is to um, to destroy the other person's expectations. So if we looked at, you know, white patriarchal global capitalism as negotiation, what they have been good at is convincing us that we're nothing so they can get us at the lowest rate possible. So they just keep us like, whoa, whoa. We're, we're. So we, we have to set our own expectation of ourselves, and we have to hold that ground. Mm-hmm. And that's what we haven't been able to do. And, and on that, what, what, what Damon is saying is that we need infrastructure. Everyone, most of us are not cut out to run a business. Mm-hmm. Most, I will say about 90 to 95% of us need to be in an environment that's structured because this is just how we are. And we would prefer that. Most of us would prefer to know we're going to get a paycheck on the 1st and the 15th or once a month. We know we're going to get that check. We can bet, bet budget. We're going to get this many weeks vacation. Most of us do not want the uncertainty of entrepreneurship. We don't want the stress of it. It is, it is a damnable thing, those of us who are in it. You got to, you know, you don't know what's going to happen, 
most of us need infrastructure and structure. So to your point, you know, if anyone's starting a business, find people in your culture who can do all of those things. Because I always question, how do they build the structure to begin with? Like, it can't be rocket science. All of these companies from IBM on, it's not like rocket science. Why? Of course we can do that and have places where people like Very Smart Brothers and The Root can come into our conglomerate. Risk I mean, I, reward though. The people who take the biggest risks get the biggest reward. And it's usually not the people who are actually building, building the thing, you know, the labor is not usually taking that risk. And, and so they don't get the biggest reward. Yeah, but even, even you know, when we think about the, the, the spirit of entrepreneurship and, and I guess this American ethos of, you know, just, just working for yourself and being for yourself. And, but when you pull back the curtain, when you look at a person like a Jeff Bezos or like, a, you know, what's his name, Bill Gates or whatever, and you see all of the infrastructure that they, even though they dropped out of college or even though they went out on their own, all the infrastructure that they had, the loans that they were able to get from their, from their families, you know, the, the, the support that they were able to get from, from their people around them. And so if we're going to talk about that, we also have to mention that thing. It's like, okay, so you were an entrepreneur, you quit college, but you also got 500K from your people. Mm-hmm. And how many of us have people that we could just hit up for 500K or however much money he got to, mm-hmm. you know, to start his business, you know, and just, just have someone just write you a check for that and just boom, here you go. And I don't even, I, to, I don't, it's not even a loan. This no, is you're a right. Gift. You're right. Not even alone. And that, that, like, that goes yeah. for why we don't have businesses in our communities, because they will give some foreigners the loan to start a business in our community before they'll mm-hmm. give us the money to start a business. Well, in our community. pause, pause. Uh, a lot of people who come from other places, I was just I'm going to have a whole banking conversation tomorrow because I was like, why is the largest? Because there's this documentary about black millionaires and I'm going to do a deep dive tomorrow on Thrive Thursday. But I was like, why don't, you know, One United or what, why don't they have the resources that a Banco Popular or an Asian, the Asian, I think the largest Asian-owned bank has like $35 billion in assets. Uh, One United, I don't even think has a billion still. And I was like, why is that? And it's because black millionaires are not putting their money in black banks. And maybe they shouldn't because, you know, it's almost a chicken and an egg because they're not at a place where, whereas most of the working class immigrants only like there's a bank of popular everywhere. So that's the bank they trust and rely on because it's everywhere. And they understand that culturally that that's how they build, but they still don't have the wealth that black people have. So, so there's something going on here that we need to suss out, but I didn't, I didn't bring you on to talk about all this Damon. Yeah, I know you were Go ahead, but you feel free to ring in. Feel free. I mean, you're, you're speaking the truth. I'm, I'm listening right now. Right. I'm, I'm listening. I will be taking notes. Okay. So, um, <laughs> You, you wrote this book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. And I absolutely mm-hmm. agree with the premise. Tell me from Pittsburgh, where you arrived at this conclusion. Yeah, so the book is about the angst, absurdity, and anxiety of existing while Black in America. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a memoir, memoir and essays, um, where I, you know, it talks about uh, obviously race, racism, but also gender, uh, the performance of, of gender, sexuality, um, uh, parenthood, uh, being uh, being a son, um, and the shifting relationships with parents as as, as that evolves um, through time, and also a through line throughout the whole book is economic anxiety, um, where you know I grew up either below the poverty line or maybe an inch above it, and that was my experience for probably the first 20, 25 years of my life, and so how that can be an equilibrium shifting you know, barometric pressure flattening, you know, um, behemoth 
that affects how you feel about yourself, that affects how you how you move around in the world. And so the book just tries to infuse all of those elements and, you know, hopefully just tell this story of this, you know, I'm a 43 year old uh, black man from Pittsburgh, played basketball in college. Not everyone has had my exp that experience, right? As my experience, but everyone has dealt with anxiety. Everyone has dealt with insecurity. Everyone yes. has dealt with vulnerability. Everyone has dealt with self-consciousness. You know, everyone has had a journey to feel comfortable in their own skin. And so I felt like by making my book so specific to the point of it being esoteric, it was able to be a bit more universal that way. Because uh, I feel like when you try to universalize the thing, try to make a thing for everybody, it ends up being a thing for no for nobody. Facts. Right. Um, and so, you know, people ask what my, who my target audience was, me. <laughs> right? I was, my target audience was me. I wrote the things that I want to read. And, and then, you know, hopefully other people, you know, which there's some sensibilities um, that, 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 that I possess. So, um, so yeah. And, you know, book came out in 2019. It, it, you know, did pretty well, won a couple of awards and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. Yeah. You you're know, a good writer. I, you're, oh, you're, thank you. you're a good writer. And speaking of anxiety, you recently wrote a column. Uh, you, you said, we don't need to talk about Kanye. I do though. I think that maybe what scares me about Kanye West, what maybe compels me to to attempt to make sense of what appears to be a hyper public manic episode, and I guess we got to talk about Will Smith maybe, I don't know, is what scares me about me. I have social anxiety, which is one of those unugly disorders. It was once much more prominent in my life than it is now, like a prisoner in my own skin. And then there was also the kinetic disorientation of feeling this way while black and male and we're going to tweet out the whole piece so that people can read it themselves it's wellness wednesday on the karen hunter show and i just did an interview with a doctor a psychologist talking about anxiety but i imagine for black men you know um you you can't talk about it because it's it, it's not just unsexy or un you know unugly it's 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 unmanly to have any kind of mental disorder that is not like Mike Tyson. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you, could, you know. I mean, I so I I do believe that there's there's a lot of space for us to talk about it and to talk to each other about it and and much of that space finding you know um, is internal where we have to get past whatever socialized notions of masculinity and, and blackness and black masculinity, the fusion of those two things and be able to be vulnerable because there is space for that. Like, I, 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 I don't think that we can, I don't think that that excuse that, oh, there's no way to be fully human or there's no way to, to live and to breathe and to grieve. I don't think that that excuse is valid anymore. Right. But there still is some work that needs to happen in order to, I guess, unpack all of that socialized, you know, all, all of those socialized and idealized versions of blackness that, you know, you grow up in, you, you see that black men are supposed to be a certain way, particularly straight black men are supposed to be a certain way. And if you, you know, like, for instance, I, I use the example of Denzel. Right, you're supposed to walk in a room like Denzel Washington, and and if you and if you do cry, if you do happen to cry, it, it got to be that one thug, that one thug tear, like in Glory, like you can't let the waterworks go. All right, and so getting past that, it takes some, it takes some work, it takes some unlearning, and you know the the the, the thing is that while you're in that process of unlearning and subverting and and whatever, you can't be harming other people, because I think we 
we sometimes use that, like, you know what, I didn't have room to grow. I didn't have room to be. And so I committed this harm, you know, against someone else. And, and usually it's the people that's closest to us that very often that's the women in our lives and not even just the women in our lives, but the women who are, who just exist, don't even have to be the women in our lives. Right. And so, and so again, it's a, it, it is a process. It is a, a journey, but it's not, it's not like an impossibility, right? So when people say like, there's no room, there's no space, that, that's just not true. You just have to do the work to find it. And you so what do you, to, I'm sorry. what do you think about Afro-pessimism? Oh man. <laughs> what is that? I mean, well, first define it. Huh? What is it? I'll let him, I mean, Frank Wilderson is whose book I did, and that took me to Neely's work, but mm -hmm. he was sort of speaking antithetically to a sort of Afro-pessimistic point of view, which basically um, posits that the existence of Blackness is that we are, we don't exist. We are essentially dead inside a white patriarchal capitalist society, and that that is necessary because they had to create something that they are not. And so all of our efforts to try to exist inside a society that was made to be not us is rather fruitless. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with the, with the global ubiquity of anti-Blackness. Um, and it's not just an American thing, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an earth thing at, at this point. Um, Come on, what about the whole continent? Brazil, I mean, we, we've got whole sections of the world where we are the whole world. Yeah, but even in Brazil, there's anti, I mean, it, it, there's anti-Blackness there. Mm -hmm. um, you, you go to Brazil and if, you, and if you're dark-skinned, you're brown-skinned, then you get treated differently than the lighter-skinned Brazilians. I mean, and that's, that's true. That, that's true. And again, that, that exists everywhere, really, you know, and, and, and again, that's the thing that been enough places on the continent to know if it's everywhere yeah on the continent i mean africa mm -hmm. well yeah i well, was gonna say uh, it, anti -black, it, it, i mean but i'm watching this uh netflix thing and um was it what young is rich it? and african young rich is mm -hmm. like a jesus but and at least two people on there are skin bleaching at least two at least two at least two and then if you go to ghana or to, to nigeria or even to china there's a skin bleaching ads are everywhere so even in a space where there's black leaders and black 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 blackity black there's still this man they they did a number there's still this notion that white is better and here's a product and it's a billion multi-billion dollar industry how is skin bleaching a multi-billion dollar industry in a world with so much melanin Antonio, you made you made a great point like i haven't been everywhere you know, and so I can't, I can't necessarily speak to anti-blackness being everywhere, but it is more than just here, is I guess what I want to say. And it, it's more than just here, and it's more in just predominantly white countries. There are countries where there are more of us where anti-blackness is still um, pervasive. Um, and so how to, how to remedy that? I don't know. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend that, that have, do, have do a solution. Do you describe yourself as... Oh, go ahead. Do you describe yourself as neurodivergent? Um, I guess I, I guess I would. I guess I would. Um, you know, and, and this is something that, you know, with the with the with the anxiety, social anxiety, whatever, it's not 
it's not a thing that I actually recognize. And it's a thing that I've recognized in myself for as long as I've been alive, basically. But in terms of something that, oh, this is an actual, you know, this is an actual like psychological or mental condition, right? This isn't just you feeling a little anxious or some butterflies when entering an unfamiliar or uncomfortable space. This is an actual thing, right? And that recognition didn't come until like the last maybe four or five years. And what, what's this, what's the remedy for that? Because I think um, a lot of people, I, I, I break out into a sweat anytime I have to do any kind of public speaking in front of a live audience. Uh, like I stumbled, I forget everything and it hasn't changed in 15 years, no matter what, no matter how comfortable I am here, I'm never comfortable there. So is that a disorder or is it just like, well, no, I think anxiety, I mean, anxiety, all anxiety, I think it ultimately is a good thing because anxiety is just the way that humanity has evolved to keep us alive. Humanity is, is us assessing threats. And when it becomes a problem is when anxiety becomes, you know, is, is when that, that threat monitor is just hyperactive. Right. And so, and, and, and what makes it and I guess what the, what the, what the metric is or what the spectrum is for making it hyperactive, so hyperactive that it's disorder I'm not really sure about that. I guess you would need a psychologist or, or someone like that on here to, to talk about that. But, but I think that having butterflies or being anxious, I think that's a good thing. I think that having that, you know, just, just lets you know that you care about a thing. But I was asking um, for you because you have identified it as a disorder for you. What is your well, remedy? What do you do to overcome it? Oh, in the last for week? me, um, muscle memory helps um being you know being in spaces where i'm familiar and i'm comfortable um and 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 also being comfortable with being uncomfortable um and that that's been a, a process too and so so the muscle memory the repetition um and again like when i released my bulk and i had to go on tour that was i mean that was terrifying for me but after the first few times i did it and i got used to doing it and also recognizing that you know what i wrote this book they're coming to see me so I'm in control of this room. And, and that helped to alleviate some of that anxiety too. It's just having that, having that measure of control and recognizing that I had that measure of control. And I say all that too, um, therapy. Therapy works too. Therapy should work. Are either of you familiar with the book by Jason Mott, Hell of a Book? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it. I it was it moved me in a profound way I felt it's about a writer and he is a writer writing about going on his first book tour and basically having a nervous breakdown mm -hmm. because the pressure the anxiety but it's about being a black man in America and I, it was just this profound thing of helping me to understand the things about being a black man that I couldn't even have imagined were concerns about it I mean like what gosh, I, I don't think I can do the book justice. I just know the emotional sense that I had of it made me feel a lot more empathy for my own black sons because there were things that he brought up that he concerned himself with that I was like, oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think of that. That's, I'm not a male, I'm not a black male, how the world perceived him. There was a little boy whose parents wanted to raise him to be invisible. That was how they were going to protect him from living as a black person. And they would make him practice 
being invisible in order to survive the world of America. Mm-hmm. I mean, that alone was just devastating. And the little boy at some point dies, but the little boy doesn't know he's dead. He thinks he's just invisible. And he's finally achieved what his parents wanted him to achieve because they just couldn't bear that he was going to hurt. And so it's like, if you just be invisible enough. Oh. Yeah, it was like, whoa. Okay. So, all right, we are here. Uh, David Young is here, contributing columnist for the Washington Post. Um, since you wrote this, something happened over the weekend. Do you put Will Smith in the same category as Kanye in terms of needing to talk about it? Or was it it's a different? I mean, I, I think that what Will, um, what Will did was a result of a combination of um, – of you know not just the remark about Jada Pinkett Smith but other remarks about Jada Pinkett Smith other remarks about their relationship the fact that their relationship has been a thing that we've been picking at and prodding for the last you know few years the entanglement the the jokes about the entanglements the memes um of his face all of that stuff it's just I I just felt like all of that stuff was culminating and Chris Rock just happened to be the huckleberry (laughs) that day that that got it you know and 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 again i mean i'm i'm not saying that to to excuse um what he did but i think you know there's a difference between an excuse and a reason and i think the reason is clear right and again it wasn't just that remark and, and there is a history there is a history with chris rock you know um going at jada pinkett smith and at in these predominantly white spaces and, you know, and I've, I'm, I've been a fan of Chris Rock, too. And but at the same time, you recognize, you know, this is a lazy, hacky, whack joke. Got all these white stars here that you could be picking on, that you could be talking about. And you even want to go at someone who is the wife who is there to support her husband, who is about to win the award for best. You know, is anyone you know, I was on a podcast the other day. Ira Madsen brought this up while on, on his Keeper podcast. It's like, is anyone have jokes on Rita Wilson, who was there for Tom Hanks for all of his. Now, Rita Wilson is, you know, popular, has been in movies and stuff on, on her own, right? But is Chris Rock, does Chris Rock have jokes on her? Well, you already know the answer to that. So so mm-hmm. can, do you think we're going to move on from this? What do you think is the fallout, Damon? We got less than a minute. 30 I seconds. mean, I, yeah, I mean, we have to. <laughs> we're going to move on from it because we have to. I mean, they're they're good. They're going to be fine. I mean, and, and, and if anything, you know, Chris Rock, I'm impressed by his chin. And his like, he took that. He took yeah. that hit. Yes, he, he did. got right back up. He kept doing his job. He didn't even fall. <laughs> he, not, he, he, he got didn't, a strong he, he core. Didn't, he didn't say ow. No, he didn't nothing. Hold, hold his face. He did, he made a joke and he kept doing his job. That's right. That's so. right. And that's what we should all do because we've been doing it. Listen, Damon, mm-hmm. it's a pleasure meeting you. Appreciate you. Damon, D-A-M-O-N, Young, V-S-B. Appreciate you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app. <laughs>